This message was given at Campus Fellowship's 2020 Winter Retreat by Drake University Campus Fellowship Director Jacob Vansicle from Des Moines, Iowa. The theme of this specific conference was heaven. We hope you find this encouraging. So if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 22. It is the last chapter in the Bible. Okay, so it's easy to find. If you get to the maps, you've gone too far. It's the last chapter in the Bible. And before I read it, I want to say something that I know we know. And I'm pretty sure a lot of you, if not most of you, already believe. But it's good to state it before we read it. That these words are the very words of God. That God himself wrote a book... And he has given it to us to reveal himself to us. So when we read words in the Bible, we read sentences and paragraphs, we're not just reading any other book. We're reading God's book, God's words to us. So I'm going to read it with that in mind. God is speaking to us. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would teach us, that you would show us who you are. God, we need your grace. We need yourself. We need you to reveal yourself to us. Show us who you are through your word. Amen. So this weekend, my daughter came up to me, and I could tell that she was very serious, and she came up to me, and she asked if she could talk to me alone, and we were at my parents' house, and there are a lot of people in the room, so we found a place in the house where we could go and be alone, and I asked her what was wrong, and she had been thinking, and she said, Dad, you know how in the Bible... There are all these false gods. There are all these idols. What if God is like one of those gods? What if the stories about him are just that, stories? And by the end of her question, she started to cry. And I paused, knowing this is a pretty serious moment. This could very well be the first deep-seated doubt that she's experiencing. She's eight years old, my eight-year-old daughter. 
I'm like, how can I answer her? Because what she's getting at is one of the deepest questions that we can have, one of the deepest doubts that we can have. Is God really real? That's what it's getting at. I'm sure a lot of you have had that same question, that same doubt. I'm sure some of you even now are having that same question and that same doubt. And this is how I answered her. And I'm not saying this is the best answer to give in this question. All I'm saying is this is the first thing I said to my eight-year-old daughter in a way that I think that she could understand. I asked her, when you look out in the world, is the world good or bad? And she thought about it for a little bit, and she said, both. I'm like, that's right. Where do we learn about why the world is so good and so bad at the same time? She thought a little bit, and she said, the Bible. I'm like, that's right. And then I asked her, when you look inside of yourself, are you good or are you bad? And she answered this one quicker, both. And I'm like, where do you get, where do we learn that we as people are both very good and very bad? And she said, the Bible. And I told her, one of the reasons that we can know that God is the real God is that he gives us an adequate explanation, a good explanation for what we see in the world. And what I was trying to get at to a child is see the world around you, see the world and what you can see, even in your eight-year-old world, you can see these things to be true. God diagnoses the problem. He sees the situation correctly. C.S. Lewis said this, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The Bible gives us a good explanation of the past and a good explanation of the future. And when we see the storyline that God has written in his word, we can actually look at the world and understand it. The story of the Bible basically falls into two, four different scenes. You have creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. In creation, we see God create all the world, and he says, it is good. It is a good thing. And that's why when we look out into the world, we see so many beautiful things, so many great things in creation, in people. And then you have the fall, and sin enters the world, and corruption enters the world. And that's why you look out into the world, and there are so many bad things, so many evil things. And then you have restoration where God goes to work over thousands of years to restore what he created. That's why we have an innate sense that something needs to be made right. You know, we're not just completely satisfied with the good, nor are we just saying, oh, the, the bad things, they'll just always be that way. But the, even everyone, even if they don't believe in God, there's an innate sense that something needs to be set right. Something needs to be done here. And then we have restoration, that someday everything will be restored. Everything will end in a good way. And most people, not everyone, but most people have a sense that even after death, it doesn't stop. 
there's something. There's some story that continues on. And the Bible gives an adequate explanation for those things. Just look. There are many other things that you could say, okay, how do we know God is really real? But there's just one. And tonight, this is what I, I want us to learn. This is what I want to think through in this passage, is this. If you understand the past and your future, it will completely change your present. If you understand what God has said about the past, and you understand what God has said about the future, your life, guaranteed, will change. If you believe it in faith. So like children, we want to come before God. We want to hear what He has to say about these things. So look at Revelation 22, verse 1. The, the first verse says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Now, I don't have time to unpack every detail of these five verses tonight. Just like the rest of Revelation, there's a lot of debate throughout the entire book of Revelation about what things mean. Is it literal? Is it a literal river? Is it figurative? If it's symbolic of things, what do the symbols mean? There's a lot of debate over this passage and the rest of Revelation. But one thing that almost everyone agrees on is this, that these five verses are showing a restoration of what Eden was, what happened at the beginning when God created Adam and Eve and put them in the Garden of Eden. These verses show a restoration of that. And here in the first verse, we see the first thing. We see a river. A river. In Genesis 1, or excuse me, in Genesis 2, it says this, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So when we picture Eden in our mind, we're reading the first chapters of the Bible when we're picturing it, we shouldn't just picture trees birds and butterflies and beautiful flowers and fruits and all those things, we should also picture a beautiful river flowing through it. For my last anniversary, my wife and I, we went and we stayed at a cabin off the Mississippi on the Illinois side. And I just love the Mississippi River. I just love, it's huge and big and flowing and just, just something about it. I just love it. And during one of the afternoons, my wife decided to take a nap, and I was there, and it was me, and the only person we brought with us, or I shouldn't say person, the only being we brought with us, our new puppy, Lucy. And I'm like, I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take Lucy, we're going to get in a kayak, and it's just going to be like some, you know, Lewis and Clark, just exploration down the Mississippi River. It's going to be great. So I get the dog in the kayak, and I get out there, and I get out onto the river, and I can, it's just the perfect temperature, not too hot, not too cold. Out in the middle of the river, there's like this little island thing with trees, birds are chirping, and just for a moment, it's like, wow, this is peaceful. The oar going into the water, out of the water, just so nice, and that lasts for a good five minutes. 
and then my dog decides to just jump overboard. And I return to the cabin, soaking wet, freezing cold, with a very muddy, sandy dog. But for a moment, I had a little taste, a little picture of what it might have been like in Eden, a beautiful river. Wendell Berry writes in Jaber Crow through the main character, Jaber, who's an old man, and he's looking out on the river that he grew up on in Kentucky. And he's imagining what that river has seen in its time. He's imagining the day in which no man had ever seen that river, that God alone created it and waited thousands of years before any person would discover it. The only thing that was there was the water and the animals and the plants, no humans. And then he imagines Native Americans finding it, discovering it, calling it names that he had never known, even though he had grown up there his entire life, swimming in it for the first time, fishing in it for the first time. And then he thinks about the history in which he had been alive, his 80 years, where he had seen steamboats. Then he saw it move on to diesel boats and flat boats and then speed boats and then all the different types of boats over time that changed along that river. And this is what he says. He says, and yet it is hard to look at the river in its calm just after the daylight or just before dark and believe that history has happened to it. The river, the river itself, leaves marks but bears none. And what he is saying is when you look at the life of a river, when you see it, it seems very old and very new all at the same time. This river has been here for a long time, but it's constantly fresh, constantly new. Now imagine a river running through paradise. And where is it running from? It says it's running from the throne of God. The God that does not know time. In fact, he created time. The God that doesn't know history. He's not underneath history. He holds history in his hands. And this being that it's not even proper to say is very old. He just is. A river is running from him, from his throne. And it's constantly new, bringing life. If it's a literal liver, liver, <laughs> if it's a literal river or a figurative river, the imagery is beautiful. It means the king of life gives life. He gives life to his people, to his children. So the first thing we see in Eden is a river. And here in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, we see a river. The second thing we see is this, is we see a tree of life. Revelation 22, 2 says this, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each year. 
And the Greek tree of life is missing a definite article, which means that it means one kind of tree, not just one tree. Notice it's on both sides of the river. So there are this one kind of tree along the, the sides of the river bearing 12 different kinds of fruit that give life. We should recognize this language because we see it in Genesis. The tree of life is one of two trees that are named. You have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, meaning if they ate of it, they would know what good and evil is. This is the only tree that God says, don't eat of it yet. Don't eat of it. So every day Adam and Eve had to pass by that tree and decide, am I going to follow God or rebel? And every day up until the fall, they followed God. Every day up until their rebellion, they followed him. And then they ate of it. The other tree that gets a name is the tree of life. We're introduced to it in Genesis 2, but Genesis 3 gives us more explanation of what it is. This is what it says. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. This is after they sin. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he blocks it with an angel. So what was the tree of life for? It seems that the tree of life, eating it, would make someone live forever. Eating continuously of it would make someone live forever. Now this might sound like a good thing, but it's not a good thing in their state. Who read, I can't really see a lot of people, who read Tuck Everlasting in school as a kid? Anybody read Tuck Everlasting? A few, a few of you? So the premise of the book is this. A family, the Tuck family, they find a spring and they drink of it and then they find out that they cannot die. The stream gives them life. They are not able to die. And the book catches up with them a hundred years after they drink it and they have still not aged a day. And what might seem like an amazing thing, what might seem like, oh, I want to find that stream, actually turns out to be, to be something very bad, something that you would not want. This is what the father, Mr. Tuck, says in chapter 2 of the book. He says, Tuck twitched and the smile vanished. He opened his eyes. Why did you have to wake me up? He sighed. I was having that dream again, the good one, where we're all in heaven and never heard of that stream. Now why? You get to live forever. Why would you wish you were in heaven and never heard of that stream? The reason is living forever is not good if things are bad. Just because you say everlasting before a word or forever before a word just because you use those words as an adjective to describe something else does not make it good. If you say everlasting headache, you know, it's like, oh, great, you know, everlasting toothache, everlasting poor relationships, everlasting insecurity. You know, that, that doesn't make it good. Adding that word before another word does not automatically make it good. And when you add eternity, to something that is not good to be eternal. That is not heaven, that is hell. 
And when we see that, we realize that God, after sin enters the world and after the, he curses the world, having Adam and Eve eventually die and human, humankind eventually die is not just a punishment. It's a grace. Because if we were to live forever in our current state, it would not be good. Just to think of all the things in your heart, in your life, the sins that you're trying to break free from, lasting forever. But the Word of God gives us something. It gives us that there will be a tree of life given to us in a new state when we're completely new people. So in Eden, we see a tree of life. In Revelation 22, again, we see trees of life. The next thing we see is this. The curse is lifted. Revelation 22 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb, uh, and of the Lamb will be in it. So in Genesis 3, after they sin, they go and what do they do? They hide. They hide from God. But here, when things are restored, we see that they are present with God. God is present with them, and they're able to worship Him. One of my favorite authors, Marilyn Robinson, depicts this inner struggle with one of her characters, Lila. She had left her past life. She was a prostitute in St. Louis. She left that life and is now living in a small town in Iowa, with an opportunity to marry this pastor in the town. And internally, she's battling. What kind of life does she want to live? And this is what she's thinking. She thought, I could tell him, I don't want to be a preacher's wife. It's only the truth. I don't want to live in some town where people know about me. I got St. Louis behind me in tansy tea and pretending I'm pretty, wearing high heel shoes. Wasn't no good at that life but I did try. I got shame like a habit. And I remember reading this page and underlining, I got shame like a habit. Because I thought, I've experienced that. And I know so many people that have experienced that. Because what she's doing is she's thinking about her past life and she realizes she wasn't even good at that past life. But there's a pull there. There's a pull away from this new life that she could live. And what is the pull? Shame like a habit. Shame, guilt, indwelling sin, whatever you want to call it. That seems so deep-rooted that it's hard to even imagine what it would be like to live without it. And if, he, if we think about a world, a new heaven and a new earth without the curse, it means that we will someday never, ever desire sin again. Our shame that is like a habit will be broken forever. And this will be the case for two reasons. The, re the first reason is that Jesus has died for our sins that he has paid the price for our sins. He took the punishment that we deserve. 
Although he knew no sin, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that is true for us now. If you believed in faith in Jesus, that is true of you now. You are perfect before him. But someday, that righteousness will not just be positional. It will be experiential all day, every day, forever. Never sin again. Someday, the second reason that we'll never experience guilt is that someday you will sin your last and it will truly be your last. Has anyone made this promise to God? I know I have. God, I'll never again blank. I'll never again do that. Never again think that. Never again say that. And if you're like me, a lot of those never again promises have gone broken. But someday, there actually will be a never again. Someday, you'll look back at your last sin in the rear view mirror of eternity and see it as that, your last sin. Maybe it'll be a grumbling attitude at hospice care. <laughs> I don't know what it would be. Maybe it'll be an angry phone call or a lustful thought or picking a fight with the wrong person. <laughs> I don't know. It's like famous last words. You want a piece of me? Yeah. <laughs> who, know, who knows what your last sin will be? But there will be a last. And it'll be amazing to live in eternity and to know that everything in front of you is a sinless existence. So in Eden, we see a curse enter the world. And in the new heavens and the new earth, the curse is lifted. Nothing accursed is there. The next thing we see is access to God. It says this, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. In Genesis, after Adam and Eve sin, it says they heard the sound of him walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they knew who it was. And they hid. Now, what that means is that God walking in the garden in the cool of the day must have been a common occurrence. They knew who it was. This wasn't the first time. They knew who was there. It means in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had access to God, personal, relational access to Him, knowing Him, talking with Him, walking with Him. And I don't know what it was like. I don't know what God looked like, how He manifested Himself. I don't know. I just know that would have been awesome. Leif Inger, in his book, Peace Like a River, writes about this boy named um, Reuben in a novel, a fictional story. And he's tragically shot, and he dies, closes his eyes, and wakes up in paradise. And it pictures him walking by this river 
and walking next to this meadow that's just humming the way only meadows can hum and seeing all these butterflies, thousands of butterflies. And then he gets to an orchard and all these different types of fruits. And this is what it says. I began to feel hungry, but didn't pause. Though all this fruit appeared perfectly available, I felt prodded to appear before the master. The place had a master. Realizing this, I knew he was already aware of me, comforting and fearful knowledge. Still, I wanted to see him. The farther I went, the more I seemed to know or remember about him, the way he planted this orchard, walking over the hills, casting seed from his hand. What anger is trying to encapsulate through this character is this sense of God's presence in all of creation, in the new creation constantly aware that God is there. Who here is, you know, a little bit of participation. Who here has experienced just a sense of God's presence in creation? Maybe it was a sunset or a mountain or the ocean. Just a sense of like, wow, wow. God, you made that. God, you were present. God, you were here. But could you imagine having that experience constantly, constantly looking at leaves and being able to make a direct line to God and feeling his presence, constantly looking at blades of grass and being able to identify, God, you made this. Constantly thankful, constantly aware that he is there. In this life, we get a little taste, a little picture, but someday it will never end. And when we are there, and when we are seeing creation that way and experiencing creation that way, what will we do? We will worship him. It says this, verse 3, his servants will worship him. Now, with this conference, I hope you don't walk away thinking that all heaven is is just one long worship service. We're all singing all the time. I hope that's already been dispelled. But you need to see that that will be a part of it. Worshiping God in everything you do and at times gathering together to worship God. Now, I've been trying to wrestle like how to depict what this might be like. And I found all these different worship videos from all around the globe. I'm like, how could we get, you know, could we get one of our tech people to splice them all together? And then I found this video. And hopefully it would just give us a little taste of what it might be like to worship as a gathered people of God in heaven. Let's play it. Amazing grace, how sweet. The sound was
So much has changed in our world lately. 疫情中这么多人失去生命，显明了生命的脆弱与短暂。Pero la asombrosa gracia y amor de Jesús es más fuerte que la vida y la muerte. Wo auch immer du bist, ruf seinen Namen an. Jesus. 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 Jesus Christ. Jesus. Jesus. Don't wait another day. So imagine, as it says in Revelation 5, all the nations coming together, all the tribes, tongues, nations coming together to worship God. And we see that you know this is just just one person for the most part on a screen compiled together, and we watch and we're like, wow. But could you imagine millions upon millions of people gathered to worship God, not just in different cultures? That would, that's amazing. Different cultures like this—that's amazing. But different time periods, over thousands and thousands of years, gathered together. And in this video, it's just their voices. But imagine the different instruments that have been used to worship God throughout all of time. Drums beating in unison. The Celts bringing out their bagpipes, you know, whatever. It's just like all the different instruments being brought to worship God, and then the different genres of music from culture to culture. Gospel music, Estonian choirs singing and worshiping God, Syrian chants worshiping God. Contemporary Korean music worshiping God, all compiled, all together, singing in unison, because God had saved them. And then imagine, it's not just people. Romans eight tells us creation groans for this day. All the birds chirping in unison. The whales calling in unison, the dogs barking in unison. 
worshiping a God who has saved us. Something went wrong in the Garden of Eden, but it will be restored, and we will someday be able to worship our master as his servants. We see that in Revelation 22. We also see that we'll be able to see him face to face. This is what it says in verse 4. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. After Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and they hid from the presence of God. And we, as their offspring, have been doing the same thing ever since, hiding from the presence of God. But someday, we will be able to see him face to face. And throughout all of the history of God's people, seeing God face to face, knowing him, loving him, experiencing him is the pinnacle of human experience. Probably, we don't know for sure, but probably the oldest book that we find in the Bible is Job. And this is what Job says, Job 19. He says, even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. Job knew in his heart, we don't even know how he knew. But he knew that someday he would see God's face. And his heart yearned for that. The Psalms are full of verses like this. It's just like, pick a Psalm, point your finger, and it, there's a very good chance it'll be about this. But here's just one. Psalm 16, 2. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. Nothing good besides you. The psalmist just writes of like, what else do I have? If I don't have you, I have nothing. But with you, I have everything. And then Jesus comes. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will what? They will be satisfied. He's saying, you hunger for righteousness? You hunger for me? You will be satisfied in me. He later says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. And then St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, he famously writes, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Every human heart from the beginning of time is restless. And there's only one place that can find rest in Him. A little over a thousand years later, the Westminster devised in the shorter catechism of Westminster write this question and answer. Question what is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of man? Answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to, and to enjoy Him forever.
What is your purpose in life? Glorify God, lift Him up, and enjoy Him forever. In 1871, Father Badru wrote a book called The Happiness of Heaven. And he gives a picture of what it might be like to see God face to face. He depicts a king who's out hunting in the middle of a forest, and in the forest he finds an orphan. And the orphan is freezing cold, starving, and blind. So he brings the orphan in, and he takes him back to his kingdom and back to his his castle. And where the orphan is cold, he gives him the nicest of clothes to wear, and he gives him a warm bed. And everything in his castle is his. And where the orphan is starving, he gives him food to eat, the best of food. Three course course meals, three days, or three times a day. And he begins to gather strength and to grow. And the orphan had never had a day of school in his life, so he gets the best tutors of the kingdom to teach the orphan everything that he would need to know. And over the next few years, with the, fi- the fine focus of the best doctors in all of the kingdom, he, the orphan eventually gets his sight back. He's able to see. And he walks through the castle for the first time with sight and he sees the color of the drapes, and he sees the beautiful furniture that he's only felt, and he sees the statues, and he sees all the different rooms. And he walks out into the royal garden, seeing all the beautiful trees, butterflies, flowers, bushes, and then he sees the king. For the first time, He sees the person who had saved him and rescued him out of the forest and took him back into his castle. And the king runs to him and gives him a hug and feels his face. And although he had felt those hands before and he had felt that hug before, it was completely different seeing his face seeing the love in his eyes, seeing his smile, seeing his care. And what this writer was trying to portray is someday we will be able to see God face to face. Right now, we're like the blind orphans. We have been adopted. We have been given so many blessings. Right now, you're just being constantly poured out onto with blessings from God constantly right now. But someday we will be able to see and we'll be able to see all the blessing that God gives. And the pinnacle of that, the highest experience of that will be being able to see him face to face. That will be a day That will be the best day of your existence.
So not only are we able to see him face to face, but lastly, we will reign with him. We will reign with him. Verse 5 says, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, there's a lot in this passage. I don't have time to get into no light, no sun, but I'm going to highlight the thing that very clearly connects us to Genesis. In Genesis 1.26, we see God give Adam and Eve a job. Subdue the earth. Take care of the earth. Rule over the earth. And here in Revelation, we not only see God reigning. He's very clearly. He has a throne. He's reigning over everything. But he see, we see humanity ruling with him. Ruling over creation with him. Think of this. The Bible starts with God working. It starts with God working. He goes to work in creating everything that you see. The stars, the moon, the ocean, the mountains, he creates it all. Then he creates the animals. And he's so practical in creating animals. Just think of like a, a chicken. You probably don't think of chickens very often. They walk around pooping out pre-wrapped protein. Isn't that amazing? All you have to do is unwrap it and you eat it. And there's just protein. It'll just nourish your body. And you see cows and they're walking around with big sacks of calcium underneath them. You know, you drink that and your bones get strong. What? You know, it's like, it's like God made that. He went to work making that. But throughout all of creation, after God works, pretty much always, he invites man to come work alongside of him. So what do we do? We gather the eggs. We crack them and make them into omelets. We do all sorts of things with those eggs. We milk the cow. Probably none of you, but other people milk cows. And we get the milk. And we get those things, the egg and the milk, and we get some sugar cane and some wheat, and we can make pancakes and waffles and all these other things. We go to work alongside of our Father. Or think of when they leave the garden. <clears throat> what does God do? What does He do immediately? As they're leaving, what does he give them? Clothes. Right after they sin, he graces them with the first clothes. He goes to work as a textile manufacturer. And what have we been doing ever since? Humanity, we've been making clothes ever since. It's one of the staples of every culture. What do the clothes look like? We go to work alongside of our Father. And you think of the Tower of Babel. Instead of spreading across the whole world, they build the tower to worship them. So what does God do? He goes to work as the first linguist, crafting different languages. 
different grammatical structures, different lexicons, different vocabularies. And what have we been doing ever since? We've been writing words, communicating with words. Some of us have, have been given the horrible job of being English teachers and grammar teachers. <laughs> you know, Mrs. Tryon, my seventh grade grammar teacher, I'm, I wish I could apologize to her. But, you know, it's like ever since we've been using words, filling libraries with books and words. And even when Jesus comes and he dies for our sins, he goes to work and redeeming a people for himself. How does this message get to everyone? He brings us alongside of himself to proclaim this message. We are co-workers with Christ, it says in 2 Corinthians 6. And this doesn't change in this life. Someday, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will reign with him. Ever since the beginning, it's like God has been bringing his kids to work. It's bring your kid to work day, every day with God. We get to reign with him. Now in conclusion, I want to consider my daughter's question again. Is God really real? I don't know about you, but I have talked to enough people to know that the answer that a lot of people get is don't think about it, have faith. Did anybody receive some sort of answer like that growing up? I'm sure some of you have. Okay, some of you. It's like, don't really think about it, have faith. And what that answer does is it fails to see what faith actually is. Hebrews 11 says this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Why are they not seen? Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That's not seen because it's in the past. You can't see the past. Verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. When does that happen? In the future. You can't see the future. What faith is is understanding, thinking through, and believing in what God has said about the deepest questions that we have. Where did we come from? That's a big question, and God has an answer for it. Where are we going? That's a deep question, and God has an answer for it. How do we know you, God? That's a deep question, and God has an answer for it. And faith is seeing his answers for the deepest questions and saying yes. And acting accordingly. Trusting in it and acting accordingly. In other words, faith is opening up the map of what God says. And seeing where things began and seeing where they are going. Seeing the past and seeing the future and seeing a giant X 
on the map that says, you are here, and taking the next step. This is where I came from. This is where I'm going. I'm going to take a step of faith in that direction. One of the reasons, I usually don't, you know, quote this much from books, especially fiction books, not that fiction is bad, but I wanted us to try to imagine what it would be like to use our imaginations to really picture what it's going to be like on that day when we are there. I think you can know a lot about someone by what they dream about. What is in their imagination. What they daydream about. And if you daydream about that guy or that girl, that's not wrong. He who desires a wife desires a good thing. It's not wrong. But if that's like the pinnacle... If that's like the highest daydream, I just daydream about that all day. That is just so lame. There are much higher things to daydream about. Or you daydream about that future job. Oh, if I could just have that job. That's not bad. It's good to... God made you to work. It's good to work. It's good to want a job. That's fine. But if that's like the pinnacle of your daydreaming, that future job, that's lame. That's what is in your mind most of the time? That's what you dream about? That's what you just catch yourself wandering and thought about? Or maybe it's like the next story on Netflix or the next the movie you just watched, the book you just read, some fictional story. And it's not bad. Stories are good. God made us storytellers. But if it's all about just kind of numbing yourself, thinking about a different story, and not daydreaming about God's story, like you're missing out on the greatest story ever told. And if you're constantly enthralled with checking the score, getting on the ESPN and checking the score, you realize those points mean nothing. A lemon going through two poles to make three points. Those points don't exist. <laughs> no one has come home and said, Mom, what's for dinner? Three points. You know, it's like those points don't exist. They're not bad. They're not wrong. It's good exercise, good entertainment for those watching. But the pinnacle of our existence? God has made you for much more than that. And it needs to ignite your imagination. You need to dwell on it and dream about it and think about it and picture it and work today with that day in mind. I want to end with this quote. This, the last page of the Chronicles of Narnia. And there's no practical application. 
If we see this, we'll change. I'm not worried about that. You'll change. The last page says this. And for us, this is the end of all st- the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Father, help us to have faith, to see what you have given us, to see what you are preparing for us. I cannot believe that you said that you have gone before us to prepare a place for us. For, for 2,000 years, you've been preparing this place for us. Help us to see it, to be motivated by it, to make decisions now in light of it. Amen. If you found this encouraging, we hope you'll subscribe or follow for more content. Or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Campus Fellowship is a student organization whose goal is to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. Thanks for listening.